0: From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 11 through verse 17. That will be our reference for today. And if I had to put a title to this particular message, it would be New Year, New You. I believe with all of my heart that the Lord desires for us to grow in our grace and knowledge of who He is. I believe God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know his ways, and he wants us to mean business for him. I believe God wants us to draw closer to him today, more so today than ever before. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. Peter says this, like newborn babies thirst for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in your Salvation, not meaning that we are going to grow into and somehow gain salvation, but grow in our walk, grow in our faith. See, the Lord has made us with the capacity to know him and his word, especially if we have been born again from the spirit of God. He has fashioned you in a way that you can know him and that you can know his word. As humans who are created in the image and likeness of God, we are made with the ability to reason. But see, we cannot reason, we cannot understand rightly about who God is unless God quickens us or makes us alive. And I was reminded of this realization, I was reminded of this truth, This past week, in one of the most unlikely scenarios, and it came about by my overweight dog, Franklin. Now, Franklin is a little beagle, and he weighs probably at the point, he was 44 pounds the last time we took him to the vet. I would imagine that he was probably pushing 50 pounds. uh, A little short, stout beagle, 44 pounds. And I come to this realization last week that unless God quickens us or makes us alive, we can't understand rightly or reason properly about who he is. You might say, well, how did Franklin help you to come to this realization? I was coming home from the grocery store. It says Noah was home, the boys were home, and I picked up a few things, got out of my truck with a handful of groceries. I had, believe it or not, I had three 12 packs of drinks in my hands and some other items. Franklin was outside of the gate, Just looking at me. I pull up, most of the time he'll come to the corner at the gate, and he'll look at me, and he'll start to bark. This particular morning, he came up to the gate. I got out of my truck, hands full of groceries. He looks at me and barks, and then runs to the gate. As if I could really bend down with a handful of groceries and escort him inside. And I thought to myself, even though he is a dog, I had this exact thought, walking up the sidewalk. Even though he is a dog, it perfectly displays the lack of reasoning skills. And it reminds me of a deep theological truth that we cannot reason properly about the king of glory unless he grant us the ability to do so. Now I would underline that reason properly. What Franklin could not think was this. It seems that dad is overloaded with groceries. Let me wait until he gets in, and then I'll bark for assistance. No, all Franklin was worried about was coming inside. It was all about getting his needs met. And that is exactly the way that we are without the Holy Spirit. We find ourselves so self-absorbed that we cannot even look at the hand of God working or we cannot even think properly about God. I want you to listen carefully. And I hope this doesn't offend anyone that is tuning in who will be watching later. Hope this doesn't offend you. No matter how much our unbelieving friends like to think that they know something about God, they cannot reason properly and correctly unless God makes them spiritually alive. Now, there is some reasoning capacity. But to think correctly and rightly about who He is, that is only a gift that God can give. Now, obviously, the Franklin examination, the Franklin illustration, there's a flaw in it. Not so much about Franklin, but about his master. Not so much about the dog, because he, was, he did exactly how he was, what he was created to do. He begs and wants things for himself. And here's where the flaw comes in. Even though that my hands were full, and I could not reach down to get Franklin in, the hands of the Master is never full. Amen? The hands of God is never full. So... In this new year and beyond, the Lord wants us to live out our faith and to draw closer to Him, to abandon those old habits, those uh, selfish ways that we might harbor, and draw closer to Himself. And I will ask you upon that, if you will stand with me as we read the precious Word of God, with our Bibles, turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin at verse 11, and I will read down through verse 17. New year, new you. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Paul concluding, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Lord, we ask Your blessing upon this reading. We know that it is blessed, for it is inspired. We pray that we would have ears to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. See, this is the Sunday when across the United States, really across the globe, those who find themselves in a New Year's sermon a scenario as a church body, whether they're gathering corporately or in homes or wherever they might be gathering at, this is a Sunday specifically here as your pastor when I will set a few objectives for, for the future of Piney Grove, a few uh, vision statements maybe, a few goals that... Would be good for all of us individually and corporately as well. Uh, and before we end today's message, I, I would like to share a few of those goals with you. Now, some people might call those New Year resolutions. Some people call them resolutions. And, and I would not go as far as to maybe call them resolutions, but to say, maybe I would call them Christocentric goals for the church, Christ centered goals for the church. And I believe that's important for us to set some goals, and some vision for the future of, of Piney Grove. I, in fact, I've made a few resolutions myself this year. One of those resolutions I'll share with you. Uh, one of those resolutions that I, have, that I, have, uh, that I have, have set for myself is to read scripture more. You might say, well, pastor, don't you read scripture? Yeah, I read scripture in preparation for sermon preparation on Wednesday night and and so I, I, I'm preparing by reading. But I have set a goal for myself to read Scripture more in a quiet time setting outside of sermon or Sunday school prep. I, I plan on maybe walking a little more and uh, maybe jogging a little bit more. Ask me the, the, how that is going in about two weeks from now. And uh, I probably will stick to my reading plan more so closer than, uh, than the running or walking. And obviously for health purposes there. See, resolutions are not bad. In and of themselves, they're not bad. They just need to be focused. And the church is the same way. Church can, church can make resolutions or, or goals as long as they are focused in the right direction. And what I mean by that is the goals for the corporate body need to be those things that are Christ-centered and not based upon tradition or ourselves. Now, the custom of making resolutions is not a new thing. In fact, it's it's quite ancient. And we would we would rewind history. We would find ourselves in the Fertile Crescent. We would find ourselves near uh, the ancient world, the near ancient cult- culture of maybe around Mesopotamia. We find ourselves all the way back to the time when the Babylonians were flourishing uh, in that Fertile Crescent or in that area. In fact, it was the ancient Babylonians who, or the Babylonians, who created. Uh, these New Year's resolutions. See, the, the Babylonian uh, New Year started in March, so they would make their resolutions then, and which would be our month for March. Some of the resolutions would be that they would resolve to pay off debt. Man, that's a resolution we all need, right? To pay off debt. Another resolution would be that they would return something that they borrowed. And they borrowed, I don't know, for us it might be the lawnmower or something like that. We're going to make sure we get that back to, the, to, the, uh, to our neighbor or whoever we borrowed it from. Those things are not bad resolutions. And, and I think overall it really does demonstrate that there are certain truths and absolutes that are written into the very fabric of the world. There are things that are written in the consciousness of man that I believe that God himself put it there as we were created in the image and likeness of God. The problem is sin distorts those things. Sin distorts that reasoning. See, the issue of tension comes in the way of our broken and our fallen nature. In fact, I was reading this morning in Romans 2... And verse 14, that said, when the Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they did not have the law. Verse verse 15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their heart, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Jesus Christ. So it seems that there are some eternal truths that are written upon the consciousness of humanity, but it is because of our fallenness and because of our brokenness and our sin, we cannot necessarily live them out in a Christ-honoring way. In fact, Romans 1.21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And remember, this is the way we once were. We were futile in our thinking. Our hearts were foolish. Our hearts were darkened outside of Christ. They claimed to be wise. They became fools. See, the Lord would have us think rightly and deeply of who He is. We might say, yeah, all we need to do is believe that Jesus loves me and died for my sins. Now, at the core of salvation, that is true. But why did Jesus have to die for me? Why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to suffer on the old rugged cross? Why did Jesus have to come and fill the manger in Bethlehem? Why? And so I believe that God wants us to think rightly and deeply of who He is so that we might accurately represent Him as new creations, new people. See, at the end of the sermon, I have a few practical ways for the church to make these goals. One easy way right from the onset is to start a reading and study Bible plan. Read through the Bible in a year. And uh, in fact, I believe I have a sheet up here that's got a 52-week reading. On the back of your bulletin, you'll find it there. Today, we are in Romans chapter 1 and 2. You'll find it on the back of your bulletin. If you flip it over, there you go. Every single week, that reading plan is on the back of that bulletin for you to read through the Bible. See, you will understand God wants us to know who He is and our purpose. Everybody wants to know our purpose, don't we? We all want to know our purpose. We all want to know what God would have us to do and the way you find out how God will use you is to read His Word. So let's look intently at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, recorded anyway. I would count the Apostle Paul as one of the greatest persuaders in human history. Of course, next to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is speculation that the book of Corinthians consists of four letters altogether. But by God's sovereignty, guiding through uh, history and, and the flow of inspired text, God saw fit to give us a letter to the Corinthian church in two parts. The reference to at least one other scribing to the church at Corinth can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5.9. It mentions another letter. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immorality, and not to dig into the context of that particular verse itself, but to understand, I wrote to you in my letter. So there is within the text a reference, although there's other scholars that believe that there were two letters that God saw fit to give, and then within those two letters, we can find justification why there was only two letters. In this second letter, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, all through the region of Ukiah. This region lies along the southern shore, the southern shore of of the uh, Corinthian Gulf in part of western Greece. He is writing in response to Titus' oral report of the infiltration of super or. False apostles, and the word would be super apostles. Now, don't think that these guys are super spiritual, don't think that they had a, a, they pulled up in their shirt, you know, and they had a big A on their chest for super apostle. That's not the case. They thought themselves to be super apostles or spiritually superior to the apostle Paul. And Paul is responding to this oral report from Titus. He dives into the depth, unto the scope of the new covenant under the blood of Christ and encourages the church to give charitably. As noted in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, that says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a charitable giver or hilarious giver. And the overall tone of the letter is one of benevolence, It is of surrender, it is of humbleness or humility, it is on dependence of God. These are all wonderful attributes, I believe, that we can ascribe. To surrender to God, to be humble before Him, to be benevolent in all things, do good to all, and to depend on God to meet our every need. And if I was going to write out any New Year's resolution, I think I might start with those things. Now, according to theologian Andreas Kostenberger, he, he, said, he said this, Second Corinthians calls the church to repent of making super apostles out of jars of clay, eschewing suffering, depending on mere human resources, veiling the glory of God, and depreciating divine grace. Now, some of the church today across the world will put... Certain pastor or TV personality on a pedestal. I think we were talking about that a little bit a little bit earlier today, about how sometimes in the culture we like to put a a, a personality, a a certain preacher or TV personality on a pedestal as if they are as if they are Jesus Christ Himself. And if God would speak today, it would be from Second Corinthians. In other words, He has spoken. In other words, He has spoken. So at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul reminds or he teaches that there is coming a time when those abiding in Christ will receive a new body. Praise the Lord. I receive a new body, right? You remember that song? I, get it. I have a new body, right? So he's reminding them that this temporary dwelling place, this body, this tent will be destroyed and we have a building ultimately from God. He teaches his readers on the fact that there is coming a reconciliation. But until then, we groan, we long for the day when we will abide with the Lord Jesus forever. When there will be no sorrow, no tears of sorrow. When our bodies will not break down anymore. When there will be no sin. I'm looking for that day. Not necessarily for a new body, but that there will be no more sin. Amen. I think many of us today have gotten too comfortable with the here and now, and have, and have forgotten to yearn about our heavenly home. Yes, we have work to do here. We know this is based upon the down payment, or the Bible uses this word guarantee. It's like a down payment, who is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. In fact, we find that in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. that says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit As a guarantee, down payment. So we yearn and we long for the day of His great return. At least we should, shouldn't we? Maybe this is part of the year, this time of our lives, where we would yearn and long for His return. See, starting at verse 11, Paul launches into what is called the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, you might have that scribed in your Bible as a heading. The ministry of reconciliation, saying that God, through Christ, has joined us to Himself and has given us this ministry. Because Jesus died for our sins, they are free from the old ways of the law. And so what we find as we dig into verse 11 is this. It is a new thought, and yet it is an old thought. In fact, we can reverse it. It is an old thought and yet a new thought. Something we might need to be refreshed upon today is simply in the text itself. I don't need to come up with a pithy saying or some uh, alliteration to make the point. It is in the text that we only boast in Christ. We only boast in Jesus. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, maybe that is something that we need to recapture today, a healthy fear of the Lord. A healthy fear of God. In, in the Bible, there is two ways of looking at the fear of God. One way to look at the fear of God is that of a high reverence. We see it all the time. Prophets encounter God. Isaiah, John the baptizer encounters Christ. And what do they do? They stand and leap for joy? No. They fall on their face before God Almighty. Understanding His holiness. Maybe that is something that we need to recapture today. Because I know this, and I have really thought this. I've had one uncle who who went to go to his car one day, reached for his handle to to pull his truck at work, and before he even got the handle up, he dropped dead right on the spot. Had a massive heart attack and died right on the spot. In my family, it runs that. So don't you think that I'm like, could this be the day? Could this be the day when the Lord would call me home? Anytime God could snap his anthropomorphic fingers and end this whole thing around us, and he would still be merciful. All this mess in the world, if he'd snap his fingers and end it all, he would still be merciful. Have you ever had the thought, could this be the day the Lord calls me home? You ever had that thought? Some a little closer to death than others. Healthy people don't think about it that much. Let me dig a little bit more. How many of us have had this thought, let's say, even in the past week? I know the Lord is returning, and He's coming to judge, and He's coming soon, and so and so is lost. We must persuade. I know so and so is lost. God is coming to judge, to make right that is, which is wrong. We must persuade. Now, we know the Holy Spirit does the persuading, but God certainly uses us. How many have had that thought? How many, how many have had that thought? God is, Lord is returning soon. Fact is, many of us don't even think about the loss as often as we should, or, might, or we might think this, that's a job for another person. It's not my job. Well, the Great Commission says it's all of our jobs. It is a commission. It is ascending. It's every one of our jobs. Let me tell you this, what a healthy fear will do. A healthy fear and reverence of the Lord, a healthy fear and reverence for God Almighty will compel you to spill your guts about what Jesus has done it will move you, it will compel you to speak more about the glory of Christ. This is where Paul is heading. This is, this is, this is his lead-in to the thought. And I can almost hear the, the tone, look guys, we are not here to boast in ourselves. Listen, I'm, I'm going to share the gospel with you. Okay? We, we, we need to persuade, it's not about me. I'm not better than you. We are not here to boast in ourselves or to think that we are better. Listen to the tone. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us that, here's the purpose, that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Okay, it's not about Paul. But if you need to use some ammunition... Against the super apostles, the super spiritual. Because say, look what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. How, how, how the Lord called him from Saul to Paul and changed his life radically. You could talk apologetics all day, but there nothing can contend with a changed life who has been changed by Jesus. And Paul was that, that man. Use, use that. See, remember, reconciliation is the point. But this is a response to those who like to brag a lot. Those who thought they were super spiritual, that had the gift of speaking in tongues, or had some inside knowledge about God, and no one else is privy to it. In fact, they didn't even think that Paul was an apostle. didn't qualify. John Piper once said this, Boasting is the outward form of the inner condition of pride. It's not as if Paul is boasting. He's contending about to those who are actually boasting. It is like in the days of the apostle Paul and there are many much like that today who have taken up the banner of in christendom who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. They are those who deceive others by false teaching knowing well that what they are teaching Is not sound doctrine. And then they are boasting of their own merit and their own worth. They are filling the ears of following disciples with self-help formulas and patting the egos of broken, sinful people. When the reality is a true and regenerate, saved, mature believer in Christ, they will want to hear the corrective words of the Lord God Almighty and they will not push back against it. Now, it is a known truth that the problem isn't the Word. It's me. The problem is not the Bible. It's me. And my failure to live it out properly. So Paul says, don't boast in us. Beware of the super spiritual, who are actually more like the Pharisees. If you remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23, 27 exactly who these people are. They are like the whitewashed tomb, which indeed appear beautiful outside, super spiritual, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. And then he says, if any boasting be done, let it be for God. Let it be for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.13 For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And so I did a little cross-examination here, a little cross-reference. I pulled up the International Standard Version, the the ISV version of the Bible, and it interprets it this way. It says, so if we were crazy, it was for God. If we are sane, it is for you. See, my grandfather used to have a similar saying to that. Maybe you can imagine this countrified... (laughs) Uh, accent, which sometimes that comes out in my, my voice too, all right, but my grandfather was country, and he was a preacher in a Pentecostal church, and he said this, he said, I might be a little nuts, we would use the word eccentric today maybe, and there were people who would say that, that he was nuts. He said this, he says, I might be a nut, but I'm threaded onto the right bolt. I've always remembered that. And for the sake of the argument, even if I was crazy, let it be over the Lord. See, people get fanatical for way, way, way worse things in life. They're fanatical about something. In fact, everybody in life has an idol, something in their life, believer or unbeliever. And sometimes that thing will steer you. And then he says, and if our mind is right, then it is for you. In other words, this is a win-win situation for the cause of the gospel. But when is it ever acceptable to boast? When could we ever say it's acceptable to boast? And again, I would say that we only boast in Christ. 1 Corinthians one thirty one says, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2 one says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I come to you, I did not come with, with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. What does the Bible tell us? For when I am weak, he is He is strong. Jeremiah 9, 24, But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. And that's something to boast of. I know Jesus. Can you boast of that today? I know Christ. And then to understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things, I, the Lord, have spoken. Boast only in Jesus. So, are these super apostles um, boasting in Christ? No. They are boasting in their own ability. They are mingling law and grace, works and grace. But the motivation today is the love of Christ. In fact, if I were to give you a second point to this, where we can say an old and new thought or a new and old thought, and we can reverse the terms, however, would be this, that the love of Christ constrains us, or we can say compels us. Listen to these words, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. I like that. Because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. Now, I remember having this conversation not long ago, and it was on forgiveness. And I remember thinking, if I knew that I had done somebody wrong, or I had did them wrong, and I, and I need to ask for forgiveness, just from my own personal testimony, I wouldn't be able to sleep until I made it right. Now, I say that because I am not boasting in self. Believe me, it's not, it's not me. It's not how spiritual I am. It's actually far worse than that. Because it is a statement of my utter need for the Lord. And that outside of that, I wouldn't care. I'd go to sleep, sleep like a baby. It is the Holy Spirit that compels us to love and forgive. I want you to listen to this verse in conjunction with 2 Corinthians 5:14, 1 John 4 and 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Paul's reasoning is if Jesus can endure the cross out of love to be sure His love will motivate us as well. Don't you think? The love that that took Christ to the cross should compel us to love others. To be motivated by the love of Christ is is what helps to equip a healthy church. Nobody wants to go to a church where there's division. Nobody wants to go to a church where there's bickering. Nobody wants to go to to church where there's backbiting and gossiping. You know what the love of Christ will compel you to do? If there is a brother or a sister who is struggling in sin, this 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 is good. This is what the love of Christ will compel you to do. If there is a brother or sister who is struggling in sin, His love, Christ's love, will compel, constrain us to challenge them out of love. So they might get on the right path. That is not popular words today. That is not popular today in this culture. When we stiff arm and say, how dare you? It's my business. And done in the right motive and the right way, we could admonish those who are in sin or those who are or off that right path, and do it out of love. See, that is what the love of Christ... You won't let people live in their sin. See, the idea behind this phrase, control us, or compel us, or constrain us, is to say that they are pressed together. So there's a sense of unity. The idea is, and it's going to sound weird, but this is the idea. The idea is ears pressed together. Ear to ear. That's... that's the understanding of the, of the phraseology is that ear to ear, we're pressed together in unity. As, as a body of believers, ear to ear, pressed into unity. Now, now, therefore, as he has most certainly died for all, then all were dead, and the need for sacrifice and the quickening and unifying power of the Spirit of God... He says in verse 15, and he died for all, and those who might, and those who live might no longer live for themselves. You know, this, uh, this idea of we were bought with a price comes to mind. We're no longer ourselves, right? But for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Now, in my Bible, in verse 15, I have underlined this word, or these two words, for their sake, or their sake. I remember this song that we used to sing in the church that I grew up in. And uh, this song, we may may have sang it here before, I'm not sure. Uh, It was titled, He Paid a Debt He Did Not Owe. You ever heard that song? He paid a debt that he did not own. And the the words of of that, at least the first line was something like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. I remember this song, I remember singing this growing up, that Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Now, the debt wasn't paid to Satan, it wasn't paid to the devil, it was paid because of sin and the righteous demand. Sometimes you might hear a person say, Jesus' death and, re- and resurrection was ultimately for the glory of God. And I believe that. The death on the cross... It was ultimately for the glory of God Almighty. And I get that. But some will say that as if they are trying to distance oneself far away from any human merit. And I get that too. We don't owe, we, we don't, God don't owe us anything. Can okay, we're not saved on our own human merit or worth. I, I understand that, I get it. But Paul also wrote this. For uh, who for whose sake? their sake, died and was raised. See, we live in a world that promotes this either-or scenario. But why couldn't it be the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus was for the glory of God and for our sake? And for our sake. I submit to you, that is exactly the interrelation. So, from now on, he says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And some find the writing of Paul to be a bit difficult to understand. I want you to think about verse 16 in this way. So then, from now on, we do not think of anyone from a human point of view. Even if we did think of the Messiah, Jesus, from a human point of view, we don't think of him that way any longer. Even though he is human and took on that, his humanity took on our suffering. We do think about it in that way. But now we think of Christ as much more than the carpenter from Galilee. More directly, the old way of life, the way that we used to be. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we come to the point in this particular portion where we find the, the conclusion. and We know this part is the conclusion of this thought because Paul uses the word, therefore. Like the vine to the branches, anyone bound to Jesus is a new person. and He has grafted us into himself. He has made us alive. So what does a person who is in Jesus Christ, a new creation, what do we do? How do we demonstrate that we are new creatures? What is the answer? What is the answer? produce fruit. That is what a believer who is engrafted and abiding in Jesus will do. They produce fruit. I want you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this includes thinking rightly. About God, So whoever is in Jesus receives a fresh, a new start. See, I love the insight of John Wesley. Sometimes our reform friends refrain from using John Wesley. But John Wesley, on this point, he said this. Only the power that makes a world can make a Christian. And when he is so created, the old things are passed away. He goes on to write, he says, all things have become new. He has a new life. He has new senses. He has new faculties, new affections, new appetite, new ideas, new concepts. And the whole tenor of his action and conversation is new. And he lives, as it were, in a new world. Now we haven't got to that new world yet. We haven't gotten everything perfectly. But we are most definitely, if we are born again, we are a new creation. Now, why is he or she different? Because God has changed them by his Holy Spirit. He's made them alive because now they are compelled by the love of Jesus and not like Franklin, by selfish motivation. Now, there's nothing like seeing a person who has been saved come out of that old way of life and see things differently. Now, it doesn't mean that all struggles will go away. In fact, you'll find struggles come quite often but it implies that we have a better way than the way of the world, and His name is Jesus. Amen. And the phrase Paul uses is this, to be in Christ. can be also understood as abiding. The word for abide, like in the case of 1 John 2 and 24, it says, what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son. It means to remain. To abide, in this sense, means to, we remain as His as His children, as His creation. And if there ever was a word that spoke out against losing one's salvation, it is this word abide, for it implies that we remain in Him. It is the word abide. It implies that those in Christ remain in Him. What does it mean for you and I to exhibit Christ-likeness and refrain from the old man or woman rearing up its ugly head? It means boasting in Christ alone and being compelled by His love into action. I, I remember reading this illustration last week, and I'm going to share this with you in closing. I remember reading this illustration. I want to share it with you. It says, London businessman Lindsey Clegg told the story of a warehouse property that he was selling. The building had been empty for months. And it needed some repairs. Vandals had come in and had damaged the doors, smashed the windows, had strewn trash around the interior. And as he showed a prospective buyer the property, Clegg took pains to say that, I'll replace the windows, I'll bring a crew in to correct any structural damage, and to clean out all the garbage in it. Forget about the repairs, the buyer said. When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building, I want the site. Compared with the renovation that God has in mind, our efforts to improve our own lives are as trivial as sweeping a warehouse slated for the wrecking ball. When we become gods, the old life is over, as we find in verse 17. He makes all things new. But here's the thing. All he wants is you. That's what he wants. He wants you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old have passed away. Behold, the new has Come, And I want you to hold on to that thought, and if the Lord has dealt with you today on any of of the word that I shared with you, on boasting in Christ alone, something that you would like to make as a vision for your life, a goal for your life, a Christ-centered goal, I would pray that you would... You would seek the Lord's face on that. Some practical ways that I told you I would share with you at the end. A few goals that I would like to pursue as a pastor this year. A few of those goals you'll find here on the communion table. One of those will be to build our worship team again. That would be for planning, for preparation, for instrumentation, special music. That all points to the worship of God Almighty. And again, this coming year, I would like to build upon our worship team. And if the Lord is dealing with you about that particular ministry, sign your name up here. It's as easy as that. Second, what I believe is integral to any ministry in any church is that of a prayer team. You'll find on the second sheet up here, there is a place where you can fill in your name and say, I want to get involved with praying for the church. I want to pray for our church. I want to pray for our community. I want to pray for all the events. I want to pray for the preacher. I want to pray for our teachers. And if you would like to be on a prayer team, a Piney Grove prayer team, and maybe you already are, and that's good, but if you would like to further that ministry, there is a second sheet for you to sign up here. That would be my second goal, my second thing I would like to see for the church. Another thing I would uh, like to see is our Sunday school teachers in here today. Reach out to those in your Sunday school class. Send them a letter. Give them a call. Let them know that they are missed. Let them know that you are praying, praying for them. As a pastor, the greatest goal of all is to honor Christ in all that we do and to see people grow. And remember this, we boast not in ourselves. We don't boast of having a robust praise team. We don't boast in having a, a robust uh, prayer team or, uh, or uh, worship team. We boast in Christ. It is all for his glory. And the greatest goal again that we can have is to honor Christ in all that we do. Would you, uh, would you pray with me?